Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, foster care in Minnesota, a U of M task force studies ways to improve how our elderly are cared for, and a look at how the trade war with China is impacting Minnesota corn growers. But first... Time is running out for Governor Walls and Republicans to agree on a new state budget with Monday's midnight deadline looming for the legislature to adjourn. MNN's Bill Werner joins us with a recap of a rough week at the Capitol. Scott, after no success in negotiations over the Mother's Day fishing opener weekend, Governor Walls on Monday tried to break the deadlock by offering to reduce his proposal for a gas tax hike from 20 cents a gallon down to 16 cents. But he argued an increase in the gasoline tax is still necessary. This is roads across Minnesota. This is bridges that are structurally deficient. These are stories of people getting killed, and we know we need to invest. My goodness, Alabama just did a gas tax last week. Senate Republican Majority Leader Paul Gazelka called the governor's offer a tiny step. From $12 billion of tax increases over the next four years, it goes down to $11,600,000,000. So it is a tiny step, uh, but at least we're moving in the right direction. But Gazelka reiterated any gas tax increase is not an option. Budget talks temporarily broke down that same night after Republicans suggested tapping the state's rainy day budget reserve to pay for some of the funding increases the governor wants. Majority Leader Gazelka. We have the largest budget reserves that we've ever had and so we feel like we could use some of that. Walls fired back Republicans' no new taxes pledge means insufficient money for education and other programs, so they dive into the rainy day fund. This used to be the party of fiscal responsibility. This used to be the party that actually had some credibility to talk to us about how you did budgeting, and they did this. Republicans responded fiscal responsibility is the state living within its means. We're saying we don't need taxes to do it, and the governor is, and that's, that's why it's such a difficult place that we're at. They know they can't go back home without putting more money into education, more money into corrections, because that's what's needed. And to do that, they dig into that fund. The state's rainy day budget reserve. With no apparent movement toward a budget deal, the governor and Republicans switched their approach, imposing what's been termed the cone of silence, going behind closed doors for extended negotiation sessions, afternoon into evening, into night, into early morning but saying virtually nothing to reporters camped out outside the meeting rooms. We're still here. That's a good thing. <laughs> uh, moving along, attempt to get this budget done. Uh, appears to me like uh, our plans to be here all night. We're working through the budget, and the fact that we were there that long should say something. Meanwhile, House and Senate negotiators continued hammering out at least some of the differences in conference committees on the major budget bills. But their work was constrained because the top leaders had not agreed on overall numbers for taxes and spending. Among a number of notable developments, two gun measures, background checks and a so-called red flag law, will not be part of a broad public safety bill after they failed to pass in a party-line conference committee vote this week. St. Paul Democrat Dave Pinto argued. Criminal background checks on all sales is a proven policy. It's in use in more than 20 states with lower rates of gun death and other statistical benefits as well. But Rob Doerr with Minnesota Gun Rights argues... These laws do nothing to keep guns out of the hands of individuals who were actually worried about possessing firearms. And the big problem is they're much more likely to catch a good person in a paperwork mistake. 
More all-day and all-night budget talks between the governor and legislative leaders. No word on whether they were making any progress on the big issues, taxes and spending. Governor Walls took a quick break Wednesday evening to attend the Peace Officer Memorial Day ceremonies on the state capitol grounds, where he lauded law enforcement officers who keep Minnesota's communities safe and also said about Minnesota's government leaders, Shame on us if we can't figure out a way to work with one another. Shame on us if we can't figure out a way to work together to better the lives of Minnesota. Heading back into negotiations, the governor said the peace officer ceremonies he just attended. Refocuses me on exactly why we're doing what we're doing. Are you making progress, you think? We're moving, I think. We're still moving. Thursday afternoon, more budget talks. We'll all be in the room. I got a haircut for the occasion, so this is it. But when asked whether there's any progress, the governor would only say, we'll see here. It became clear by Thursday night that the legislature was going to have a hard time meeting its midnight Monday deadline to pass a new state budget. Senate Republicans, in what one analyst calls a smart tactical move, brought forward a bill which would continue funding for state government at its current levels if the governor and Republicans cannot reach agreement by the end of the fiscal year, June 30th, on a new budget. Democrats object it's basically acknowledging the legislature would miss Monday's deadline for passing a new budget and go into overtime. St. Paul Senator Richard Cohen doesn't like it. When we reach this point, this is where we kind of throw up our hands up in the air and say, gee, we give up. Hutchinson Republican Scott Newman responds. I don't feel like the pressure is off at all. I I still have a job to do and I intend to do it. Lionel Lakes Republican Roger Chamberlain adds it's hope for the best, prepare for the worst. And he says a continuing resolution will protect state agencies and employees and protect those who rely on state services and those who pay the bills. Ham Lake Republican Michelle Benson argued a continuing resolution is essential because the Minnesota Supreme Court clearly said it will not order funding for essential government services if the legislature and governor cannot agree on the budget. I don't think the Supreme Court's going to back off from this, and I don't want to take a chance that lawyers talking in a room are going to save us if we don't get our work done. But Roseville Democrat John Marty argues a continuing resolution is premature because he says it takes the pressure off to get a budget agreement. A month from now, if we're sitting here and sitting elsewhere waiting for a special session because they're still negotiating, then I think that might be the time to do it. Hamlin University political analyst David Schultz says the move gives Republicans leverage in state budget negotiations. Especially when we're saying that we're willing, that as Republicans, to keep the government open. Um, We're not willing to go as far as the new increases that the Democrats want, but we're not the ones who are going to shut down the government. And this becomes very difficult now for the Democrats to turn down something like this because it makes the Democrats look like um, they want everything and are not willing to at least say, let's go along with something to keep the government going. It's a smart, tactical move um, in terms of what the Republicans are doing. That's Hamlin University's David Schultz. And Scott, at the time of our Friday morning deadline, budget negotiations remain deadlocked. Thank you, Bill. And of course, Minnesota News Network will have all the latest developments on budget negotiations as they happen. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Last.
Last night, we put on an epic light show. Yeah, we did. The crowd loved us. We love the crowd. Wait, but there were only four people out there. Yeah, but did you see their four faces? All eight of their eyes lit up brighter than ours. <sighs> and we're fireflies. Yeah, we are. Hey, that one girl, she looked like she'd never seen glow in the dark like this before. And we invented glow in the dark. Yeah, we invented it. And we're going to be out here every night rocking out our light show at a forest near you. So come check us out. Check us out. And bring your kid all ages show. Oh, but uh, don't bring any of those glass jars because they make us kind of nervous. Yeah, and I'm super claustrophobic. Whether you're rocking their world or they're rocking yours, some memories never fade. Come alive with the forest. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a forest near you and discover other cool things to do when you go, like fishing, biking, or even camping. Visit discovertheforest.org. See you later. Yeah, see you soon. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. As the number of children in the state's foster care system continues to grow, there's a greater need than ever for foster parents to provide temporary critical care to children in crisis. The good news is many people who might not think they qualify to be foster parents are actually eligible. MNN's Tasha Radel has more. In 2018, nearly 17,000 kids were placed in foster care across the state. Joining me now is State Department of Human Services Assistant Commissioner Nikki Fargo. So we have um, about 10,000 children who are in care every day in foster care in Minnesota. Um, last year, we had about 16,500 kids who experience foster care at some point. Um, that's some of the highest numbers that we've ever seen for our system. So that means that we, have, we are always in need of foster families and foster parents, um, but it, the need is especially great now due to the numbers. And, you know, when we think of um, foster parents, I, I, I'm wondering, do you have to be married? Do you have to have a family, homeowner? What are some of those guidelines? The only guidelines that we have is you have to be over 21 and you have to be willing to open your heart and your home to a child or children that are in need. Um, foster parents don't look a certain way. They don't live in a certain place. And we truly need foster parents from all walks of life in all corners of the state. So you don't have to be married. You can be single. You can be a renter. Um, you can be younger or older. You really just have to have that, that mindset um, to really open yourself up to, to having a child into your home. And, you know, too, I wanted to talk to you. Are there any, you know, when we look at the, the pool of uh, uh, foster kids that need these homes, um, are we seeing, I guess, any uh, groups that you need foster parents in over other groups? Well, we do have... Um, we do have an overrepresentation of uh, children of color in the system, primarily um, Native American, African American, and children that identify as two or more races. So they're disproportionately overrepresented in child protection. Um, so we're always looking for diverse foster families that, that can reflect um, the children that are in the system and the diversity of our state on the whole. Um, but it really is much more complicated than that because we look at each child and their, their unique needs and their unique situation and similarly look at foster parents so that we know that when we make a placement that that placement um, is, is a good one for everyone. 
And when we look at uh, kids that are being placed, uh, uh, do we know how long or what is the average stay that a child would stay with a a foster uh, family? I think it's important to note that foster care is intended to be temporary. Um, Sometimes uh, when children can't be returned home, they are, um, they are looking for a permanent placement through adoption or another means. Um, but about 60% of children that, that enter care in the first place do end up reunifying with their parents, which is our primary goal. Um, I, don't have, I don't have the average stay for, for a foster child, but um, I will say that it has been increasing overall. The time in care has been increasing over the past several years for children that are in the foster care system. Well, that's good information today. Was there anything else that you wanted to hit on that I didn't bring up? I would just encourage anybody that um, is even toying with the possibility of it, um, of becoming a foster parent, to, to look into it, um, to do some homework, talk to your family, talk to other people about it. Um, and see if it, if it could be the right thing for you because it, it's not a decision that you should take lightly, but it could be an incredible decision that you make for yourself or your family. Thanks again to my guest, Department of Human Services Assistant Commissioner Nikki Fargo. For anyone considering foster parenting, you can get more information about the application process on the Minnesota Department of Human Services website. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. A task force at the University of Minnesota Medical School is trying to improve the way the nation's older population is cared for. Reporter J.W. Cox joins us to detail their goals and the infusion of funds from a local nonprofit that will help get them closer to the finish line. Scott, I spoke with Dr. Jim Pakala, the head of family medicine and community health and a professor at the U of M Medical School. He's also leading the project to remake our health systems to better serve the growing population over 60. The majority of people as they age into their 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s uh, accumulate chronic diseases. So we need strategies to uh, care for that complex scenario. Collis says that problem is amplified by two distinct factors. The first is the demographic mandate. Uh, nationwide, we've got about 45 million people over the age of 65. And in uh, 20, 25 years, we're going to have twice that many. We're going to have over 80 million. Right now in the state of Minnesota, there's about 700,000 seniors that in uh, 20 years is going to grow to about 1.3 million. There's a lot of people aging into their retirement years, and we're going to need a workforce to take care of that population. That's number one. The second reason is because our health systems have not been designed to incorporate and practice the best uh, practices and the the uh, strategies that have been discovered in the field of geriatrics over the past 30 years or so to provide uh, care that produces better outcomes in, in older adults. 
Now, the good doctor and his team have a $1 million boost of funding to aid their research, courtesy of the Bremer Bank Trust. Trustee Brian Lipschultz says they're always working behind the scenes with partners to find ways to improve their communities, including a long history of doing that with the U. We have worked with them um, for, for decades on a whole a variety of projects, uh, most recently having set up the uh, help them set up the Center for Safe and Healthy Children, focusing on kind of the youngest and most vulnerable people in our population. Lipschultz says the need for an improvement in older age care is something they hear from people served by both the bank and the trust. We ourselves are a resource. We aren't doing the work. We partner with other organizations whose minds and abilities we really respect. Uh, so we take the signals from what we, we, we like to say is listening to the communities. So yes, we, ha- we have heard about these things for years in working with um, many different areas of communities, uh, areas of basic need, areas of education, and areas of health services. Certainly we have a, a long history working in rural hospitals, in urban hospitals, so we have already began to hear up close and personal the challenges that these institutions are facing. And yet, it's one thing to invest in the infrastructure, hospitals and, and health clinics themselves, but it's similarly important that we invest in the intellectual horsepower that will help all institutions be able to better serve aging population. And when we talked with Dr. Tolar, uh, Dean of the Medical School, and, and his teams, we uh, knew that this was a critical priority and it's something that had to happen now. Pakala says they are pushing for a widespread adoption of a so-called age-friendly care system centered on the four M's. The four M's are paying attention to what matters what matters to patients, so providing much more uh, patient-centered, patient-oriented care. The second is medications. Uh, Medications, uh, while they are very helpful and useful in older adults who have different diseases, those medications can also cause problems in higher uh, frequencies than in younger patients. The, The third is mentation. And mentation is actually assessing and then um, addressing uh, cognitive and other uh, mental uh, disorders in older adults. And then the fourth is mobility, and that's really paying attention to physical functioning. If we have, for example, a health system at the University of Minnesota in which all the different departments and the different services who see older adults are addressing all four of those M's at the same time. Uh, We have a workforce, nurses, doctors, physical therapists, occupational therapists, social workers, uh, front desk people, and so forth, who have an understanding of the four M's and and, and address them throughout the, the course of their interactions with patients. If we have a, a health, an electronic uh, medical record where there is a systematic measurement of the four M's in all of the patients over 65 that we see, those are the kinds of outcomes that we're going to be looking to uh, implement in this project. Lipschultz summed up the project as uniquely positioned to bridge the gaps between the science and the everyday needs of Minnesotans. We really look to 
the front lines. And the front lines of medical service takes place at the clinic. What we thought was the visionary element of this strategy, what we sometimes refer to as the biology of aging, is it really marries the science and the, the deep research that, that is so well handled by institutions like the University of Minnesota, but really brings it out to the fields, to the primary care facilities. And the partnership that the U has now with the M Health Fairview primary care facilities will really address people where they live. And that is part of the transformation that we need in this region of the country. Scott, back to you. Thank you for that report, JW. Minnesota Matters returns after this. You wanted to see me? Yes, please, have a seat. So here's the thing. When this company brought you on, we took a chance on you. You didn't have that four-year college degree we typically look for. Right. But we gave you a shot anyway. And since then, you've worked incredibly hard and given it your all. Thanks. You've been an important asset to the team. But I don't think you can be an intern here anymore. (sighs) We want to hire you. You're, You're serious? Absolutely. Find your next great employee. Introduce yourself to the grads of life. Who are they? Talent worth knowing about. Young adults of unique determination and experience. An ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or even mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. I won't let you down. I know. Don't miss out on a resource many innovative companies have already discovered. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The National Corn Growers Association is asking corn farmers to proactively reach out to the White House to raise awareness on the hardship they're facing in relation to the trade war with China and its impact on profits. Agriculture broadcaster and MNN correspondent Mark Dornkamp spoke with Minnesota Corn Growers Association Director Adam Burr to discuss this call to action. Adam, take me through what these last couple of days have been like for, for your association, the National Corn Growers Association, as uh, we, we see the situation with China unfold, we go from uh, talk of a, of a deal being imminent to now uh, an increase in tariffs by the U.S. and President Trump tweeting about more trade aid for farmers. What's this been like for corn growers? Well, I think it, it just certainly uh, adds to the uncertainty and the stress that's already out there. I mean, I, I know you've been talking to a lot of folks the last few days, certainly uh, with the weather the inclement weather and the delays in planting, it just adds to that uncertainty. And, you know, it's been quite a roller coaster, you know, beginning a couple weeks ago with the tweet about potentially increasing the tariffs. And then you saw the market respond that following Monday. And then, you know, I think it was the last Friday here where there was mention of the aid package. And then, of course, we see um, the markets responding, probably responding as well to, you know, 30% of the corn crop being planted as of as of Monday. So it has been, I think, you know, uncertainty at sort of uh, maybe some unprecedented levels on multiple fronts. And, you know, when you combine that with what's going on with with, uh, ethanol and RVP waivers and small refinery exemptions and these sorts of things, it just adds to the uncertainty that's out there. Tell me about an effort uh, that I believe starts nationally, but uh, various states are, are a part of it, including Minnesota. This call to action uh, asking farmers to reach out to the White House about if there is more trade aid, 
um, what's needed, what's adequate in, in a potential package? Certainly we heard from folks that the, the one penny we got for last year was was uh, very inadequate. And you know, we know now in terms of the, the calculations that went into that, it, it really focused on exports of raw product to China. And of course, there isn't a lot of raw product shipped to China in terms of corn. But when you factor in ethanol and some of the other things, and just the effect that it had on the markets, we know that for 2018, it probably cost us around 44 cents a bushel in terms of the corn cop price. So we just want to make sure that um, really uh, raise the awareness uh, that, you know, we need, it's never going to make us whole, right, the payments, but at least something that's more commensurate with what had the tariffs have done to the market. And also really wanted to direct it at the administration, recognizing it's, it's not just trade and aid package and so forth, but it's also, like I said, you know, um, we need a break on some front uh, relative to ethanol. We really need that RVP waiver. And of course, the the, uh, the days are ticking by here when we reach the deadline of when the RVP season sort of kicks in. You know, we've had the exemptions, the waivers for the small refineries here that have been in excess of 2.6 billion gallons of ethanol. Um, there's a number of things that, that could be done aside from aid packages, um, ratification of USMCA, et cetera, that would provide some certainty to corn farmers right now, um, again, when they're dealing with uh, some significant delays in, in planting right now. I heard you say 44 cents per bushel as maybe one figure as far as the impact of these trade disruptions. Uh, the, the call to action, I think, is kind of um, on the premise of more than a penny, which was, as you said, the, the last payment for corn in the uh, market facilitation program. When farmers are, are, are reaching out to the White House, um, are they asking specifically for a certain amount per bushel here? How specific are, are you going? Because I would think the more specific you can be in reaching out to President Trump and his, and his administration, the better off you'd be. Yeah, we're not being specific. The 44 cents per bushel was really in regards to 2018. Um, it, it's really, we didn't want to be prescriptive on that front in terms of the call to action because we don't know all the factors that will go into the calculation. Like I said, if you factor in ethanol export potential markets and, and other things. Um, you know, certainly there are conversations uh, happening with senior leadership at USDA, USTR, and et cetera, with National Corn and others to, to uh, address some of those details. The other situation that's different in 2019 compared to 2018 is that in 2018 the, the crops were all planted, and here we are, you know, uh, certainly in a situation where the crops aren't planted yet, so it creates another little nuance there that I think um, has to be uh, considered in terms of how they do the calculation, whether they look at, you know, historic planted acres, historic um, yields, uh, what have you. It's going to have to be done. It's, it's going to be a different formula than was used uh, last time. Anything else on this call to action that you want to make sure we discuss? No, I just think, you know, we just reached a point, and I've been getting a lot of calls from members and, and board members and like, you can just sense the frustration um, is that it's at a different level. I think, you know, certainly understand the, the concerns with the China's trade practices and that there were some things that absolutely need to be addressed there. But we've got folks, you know, I'm hearing multiple times, I don't know if I'm going to be able to hand my farm down to another generation. That becomes alarming when you start to hear that. And I just feel like, you know, the administration has to be aware and recognize that, um, you know, we're just 
farmers, I think, are running out of how much they can take um, to, to ride this out, recognizing it is going to take time, but um, they're, they're, uh, they're running out of time, I think, to, particularly when they're starting to mention you know, the inability to hand it down to the next generation. That's farm broadcaster Mark Dorenkamp and Minnesota Corn Growers Association Director Adam Burr. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.